welcome to the Complete History of Science. Series 3, Episode 3, Alhytham's Theory of Vision. In the 10th century, on the banks of the River Nile, a great new city was to be built. Its founder was the Caliph al-Muiz, head of a relatively new Islamic dynasty known as the Fatimids. The Fatimids had originally ruled over the region of Ifrica, comprising modern-day Tunisia and Algeria, but had expanded eastward through conquest, wresting control of the Nile area from the Abbasid dynasty, whose power by this time was greatly weakened. The new city they planned lay to the northeast of the older city of Al-Fustat, and auspiciously across the river from the ancient Egyptian city of Memphis and the Great Pyramids of Giza. It was named al Mawizia al Cairo, or Victoria's City of al Muiz, in celebration of the Fatimids' victory, and this gives it the name we know it as today, Cairo. But during the 10th century, we shouldn't picture Cairo as the sprawling metropolis that we know today. Instead, it was a small walled city, primarily built to house the royal family and the court, to the exclusion of most of the population who still lived in the older city of Al-Fustat. Cairo instead was made up of several new palaces and a mosque, Al-Azhar, which would become an important new centre for learning for the region. This is a role it would maintain, and the school attached to it would become one of the longest-running educational institutions in the world, known today as Al-Azhar University. At the start of the 11th century, Al-Azhar was joined by a new library, known as the Dar al-Ilm, or House of Knowledge. This library existed in the same tradition as the House of Wisdom in Baghdad, and housed hundreds of the ancient Greek texts, which had been translated into Arabic. The patron of the House of Knowledge was the Fatimid Caliph al-Hakim, who, like the Abbasid Caliph al-Mamun, was hoping to actively encourage new learning. However, unlike al-Mamun, who was praised for his wisdom and moderation, al-Hakim has left a more mixed reputation. Unlike previous Islamic rulers, who by and large had been tolerant of Christians and Jews, al-Hakim began a series of persecutions against these groups, restricting worship and destroying religious buildings. His most infamous misdeed, however, was supposedly ordering the deaths of all of the dogs in Cairo, after becoming infuriated by their barking. This led to al-Hakim gaining a reputation as an erratic and possibly violent ruler, who has become known in posterity as the Mad Caliph. However, this reputation should be balanced against what we know about his role as a patron of the sciences. His founding of the House of Knowledge was an important event in the Islamic Golden Age, as it provided continued access to the great works in logic, mathematics, medicine, and natural philosophy. Many scholars were attracted to the House of Knowledge, and it was instrumental in increasing Cairo's importance as a centre for learning, arguably making it the new focal point for Islamic scholarship. Many intellectuals, sought to build upon the astronomical work that flourished in the East in the 9th and 10th centuries. One scholar was Ibn Yunus, 
an astronomer working in Cairo at the end of the 10th century. He created a new zij, a type of astronomical table, dedicated to Al-Hakim, which improved upon its predecessors with new observations and accurate calculations. However, Islamic scholars didn't only focus on Greek astronomical work. They had diverse interests and inherited many of the same concerns as their ancient counterparts. Amongst the most long-standing of these concerns was the nature of vision. Since the beginning of natural philosophy, the Greeks had been fascinated with the question of how we see. Generally, they divided the answers to this question into two opposing camps, the theory of intromission and the theory of extramission. The theory of intromission explained vision as resulting from some stimulus entering the eye. However, this stimulus was not light itself, but rather, light played a role in making the medium through which the stimulus travelled transparent. These theories were primarily favoured by natural philosophers, such as Aristotle and the atomists, as they offered a clear causal mechanism for how we perceive objects visually. On the other hand, the theory of extramission described vision as resulting from a visual ray that was projected outward from the eye. The theory was embraced primarily by mathematicians, such as Euclid, who applied the principles of geometry to a theory of vision. This theory relied on the idea of visual rays being projected outwards from the eyes, forming a cone that defines our visual field. Islamic scientists inherited this debate from the Greeks, and the earliest works in Islamic optics date from the rise of the House of Wisdom in Baghdad. The most important early figure was Al-Kindi, a philosophical Arab writer working in the mid-9th century. His primary goal in optics was to place the theory of extramission on firmer philosophical grounds. It might be surprising to us that extramission was still being taken so seriously as a theory at this point, as it seems obvious there's no visual ray being projected from the eye. But Al-Kindi believed there was a reason it was necessary to maintain extramission. Euclid's application of geometry to the problem of vision had provided a theory of perspective, which Al-Kindi was reticent to abandon. Euclidean optics could explain why, when we change our position or angle relative to an object, the form which we perceive also changes. Al-Kindi argued that in intromission, there's no way to account for these differences in our perspective, and in some respects he was correct. Early theories of intromission failed to give an adequate account of perspective. These theories generally assumed that objects were seen as a coherent whole, rather than as a collection of individual points, which meant that important information about size, shape and perspective was lost when the stimulus entered the eye. Both theories then had severe limitations, and neither could fully explain how we see. The problem was that while extramission struggled to provide a satisfactory explanation of how we see, intromission could not account for perspective. Islamic thinkers 
continued to work on this problem throughout the 9th and 10th century, and most scholars took one side or the other without making any real progress. However, at the beginning of the 11th century, a huge conceptual leap was made in Cairo by the man known as Hassan ibn al-Haytham. As discussed in the last episode, al-Haytham was born in Basra, in present-day Iraq, but was invited to Cairo by al-Hakim. He was already well known by this time for his philosophical and religious writings, but the reason for his invitation was a series of plans he had created for the Nile region. The Nile had long been the centre of prosperity in the area, with its annual flooding enriching the soil along its banks. But Al-Haytham also knew its flooding could be unpredictable. Too little could lead to a famine, while too much could cause damage to surrounding villages. Al-Haytham recognised the importance of the Nile's flooding for Egypt's prosperity and claimed, somewhat brazenly, that he could regulate it, despite not having observed it directly. Al-Haytham was invited to Egypt to start surveying, but must have soon realised the immensity of the project. The sources claim that Al-Haytham, on seeing the enormous ancient monuments with their marvellously detailed artwork, realised that if such a project were possible, it would have already been completed by the ancient Egyptians. However, Al-Hakim had by this time garnered a reputation as a man not to be disappointed. So supposedly, Al-Haytham feigned madness in order to be relieved from his task and was confined to his home until Al-Hakim's death in 1021 AD. During this period of captivity, Al-Haytham reportedly spent his time thinking and reading. In particular, it's during this time that he developed what became his most important and lasting contribution to scientific thought, his Book of Optics. Al-Haytham had been exposed to most of the previous Greek thought in optics, and the book is clearly written in the tradition of the previous work. But it also makes remarkable new contributions, particularly with regard to questions of vision. The Book of Optics placed Al-Haytham firmly within the intromissionist camp, and his argument in favour of intromission was simple. When we look at the sun, we feel pain. This, according to Al-Haytham, is because of the intensity of the sunlight entering our eyes. Likewise, if we look at the sun's reflection in a polished mirror, the light again causes pain. He deduced from this that the visual process must be due to some external action upon the eye. Al-Haytham's theory of vision differed from previous intromissionist theories by making light the central element. Unlike, say, Aristotle, who thought that light simply made the medium transparent, Al-Haytham believed that light was the direct cause of vision. Consequently, Al-Haytham conducted experiments to study the properties of light to better understand vision. In his book of optics, he described several demonstrations that showed that light travels in straight lines. These experiments were performed in a dark room with an aperture as a light source. For instance, in a room filled with dust or smoke, 
the beam of light from the aperture could be seen to travel in a straight line. Similarly, in a clear room, the light could be observed projecting onto the opposite wall, and its straight path could be easily verified using a ruler. Alhytham's experiments in the dark room continued by placing an oil lamp with a wide wick in front of the opening of a tube. He then used a sheet of copper with a hole as an aperture on one side of the tube, projecting the light onto a screen on the other side. Alhytham noticed that as he rotated the lamp, the spot of light on the screen did not change. When the opening of the aperture was narrowed, the light became dimmer, but it still remained visible. Alhytham inferred from this that every point on an object emits light radially in all directions. He extended this idea to include not just luminous objects, but also non-luminous objects, which become visible through reflection. When light strikes a smooth surface, it's reflected at an equal angle, while on rough surfaces, it's dispersed in all directions. This confirmed for him the key insight that objects are visible because of light, which was emitted from all points on an object in all directions. This was in itself a novel and important idea. However, Alhytham realized that it could resolve the debate about the nature of vision definitively in favor of the theory of intromission. Previously, the main advantage of the theory of extramission was that it could explain perspective. However, Alhytham believed that his discovery could incorporate a theory of perspective into a theory of intromission. Instead of positing that impressions of objects entered the eye all at once, as previous intromission theories had, he suggested that seeing an object was the result of light from many points on the object entering the eye. This was the first step in developing a theory of perspective which held for intromission. However, it was still incomplete. If light was truly emitted from every point in all directions, then every point in the eye should receive light from every point in the visual field. If this were true, light from many points would overlap when detected in the eye, and the result would be a mess with a blurry, confused image rather than a clear one. Alhytham recognized that there needed to be one-to-one correspondence between the sources of light and their points of contact in the eye. In other words, each point on an object must emit light which would only strike a single point in the eye. To address this problem, Alhytham drew upon two previous traditions of scientific thought to develop a remarkably sophisticated solution. The first part was the model of the eye, which had originally been developed by Galen. Alhytham used a similar model to Galen, depicting the eye as two overlapping spheres, the smaller corneal globe containing the cornea and pupil, and the larger uveal globe, which makes up the main part of the eye. Between these was the lens, and at the back of the eye was the optic nerve. Alhytham believed that the lens was the light-sensitive component of the eye, which sent signals to the brain 
through the optic nerve. In order to solve the problem of one-to-one -one correspondence, Alhytham combined this model of the eye with the concept of refraction. He proposed that the lens refracted all rays that struck it at angles that were not perpendicular to the surface. Many of these rays would strike the curved lens perpendicularly, and according to him, the lens would let them pass through. But he argued that the non-perpendicular rays were weakened by refraction, and hence would not be detected by the lens. To justify this, he used a mechanical analogy. If you throw a ball at an object head-on, it will hit it with much more force than if you throw it at an angle. In the same way, light that strikes the eye at an angle that is not perpendicular to the surface is weaker. Although Alhytham's model of vision was not entirely accurate, he had made significant contributions to the field. He correctly identified refraction in the lens as an important factor in vision, but ultimately, the process proved to be more complex. Nevertheless, these errors should not obscure Alhytham's contribution to a theory of vision, and his work is a huge step in the correct direction. Although his solution was lacking, he was at least looking at the right problem, because solving the issue of one-to-one -one correspondence was key to unlocking vision. Beyond this, his emphasis, particularly on the role of light and his related experimental work, can be seen as foundational for the study of modern optics, separate from a theory of vision. Alhytham is a singular figure in the development of science. His work in both optics and astronomy was greatly informed by the writings of the ancient Greeks, but he never blindly accepted their conclusions. Instead, he sought to test and verify their ideas and reach his own conclusions. He should be celebrated then, not only for his specific achievements, but also his critical thinking. His outlook, however, is best summarised in this quotation attributed to him. The seeker after truth is not one who studies the writings of the ancients and puts his trust in them, but rather the one who suspends his faith in them and questions what he gathers from them. The one who submits to argument and demonstration and not to the sayings of a human being whose nature is fraught with all kinds of imperfection and deficiency. Thus, the duty of the man who investigates the writings of scientists, if learning the truth is his goal, is to make himself an enemy of all that he reads, and applying his mind to the core and margins of its content, attack it from every side. He should also inspect himself, as he performs his critical examination of it, so that he may avoid falling into either prejudice or leniency. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. We'll return hopefully in the next few weeks to look at Islamic medicine, as well as tying up the loose ends in both optics and astronomy. Since the last episode, I've set up a Twitter account to attempt to engage with everyone a bit better. It'd be nice to know who my listeners actually are and what you think of the podcast going forward. Otherwise, as usual, feel free to drop me an email at the address in the description. And I'll see you next time.